in 2020. I'm so glad you guys are the best. Hey, I have some great news for you. Um, we've killed it on the Christmas offering. Um, if you're a guest around here, uh, thanks for being in church for the first Sunday of the year. You're starting strong. But uh, every year in December and January, our church gets together and we say we're going to set aside a little bit of extra money and give a gift to the birthday boy, really, to what he cares about. Christmas is the birthday of Jesus, and so we give gifts to things that matter to him. And in our church, that typically goes to uh, children, to orphan, to those in need, those kind of things, and a few projects around here to make sure that the ministry is thriving. And so this year, our goal, uh, two goals, 100% participation, and uh, $80,000 is the goal. And uh, as of uh, last Sunday, um, actually as of Friday, um, here, here's where we are. We're at $79,640. Isn't that incredible? Wow. So this is the first time ever, um, I'm, a, I'm hoping that today, I can say this to you next Sunday, that this early we hit our goal. Um, so we're not quite there, we're just like $400 under, and I'm hoping that today that happens. If you want to give to the Christmas gift, you just mark Christmas on your check, on the offering envelope, go online, give on text, whatever, and mark it as Christmas, and then it gets allocated there. Um, we're asking for 100% participation, and we're at 49%, which is not awesome. It's okay. And there were some anonymous gifts given, and we count each anonymous gift as a standalone gift. So those are included in the 49%. And so if you like dropped um, cash or whatever and didn't mark it, it's okay. Um, we just wouldn't know what to do with that. So we'd love to see that number go a little bit further. And here's why. It's not because we're trying to like milk this for everything we can get out of it. But over the year, we will spend that money to do incredible ministry. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, we've got a great year planned. God's going to do some incredible stuff. And our heart would be that you would have an investment in that of prayer, of effort, and of your wallet. Because we know that where you put your money, that your heart is there. We didn't make that up, by the way. That's what Jesus said. So when we tell the stories of what the money is doing, we want you to have a part of it and celebrate that with us. And, um, and if you don't want to, here's the thing. It's okay. You don't have to give money for this to be your church. Um, that, that's not the way this works around here. But the cool thing is, is we have a lot of people who understand what this mission and vision is all about, and they make it happen regularly. So just thank you for that. I have one more cool number that I want to share with you. On uh, Christmas Eve Eve, uh, we, we did uh, just a great job, I think, of presenting a warm and welcoming environment for our guests. We just had a wonderful time, and the Santa pictures were great, and the kids had a good time, and Will and the band just knocked it out here. And we just, I thought we just did, did really, really well. But I'm always praying, God, would you give us souls? Would, would you make the, the Christmas Eve service a time where people have an opportunity to encounter you as their Lord and Savior? And on that night, 11 adults marked next step B, which was I'm going to become a Christian uh, tonight for the, for the first time. And so I'm just thrilled by that. And that. Yeah, give it up. Give it up. That's just awesome. Now, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit tends to use things like a welcome, a, a, a warm and inviting place, people who... Um, are accepting of others, and then the gospel gets presented with clarity. And the Holy Spirit uses all that stuff and, and moves on people's hearts. And I just want to tell you how proud I am of how God has used this church and what a joy it is for me and my family to be a part. And uh, I'm so excited to begin the message series today on prayer. Um, so if you have your Bible and your message notes, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew. It's where we're going to park most of our time, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 6. But uh, I, I want to talk to you just a little bit before we jump all the way in about prayer. Um, I don't know if you've ever had any weird experiences with prayer or not, but, uh, but I've had a few. Uh, I've been in certain prayer environments where you basically had a prayer lecturer. You know what this is. This is a person who prays for things, but really than praying for things, they're really kind of lecturing everybody else in the group. 
you know, like, Lord, I beseech you to be with Rachel and her new boyfriend as they deal with their purity issues. Um, I ask you to call them to purity in their inmost parts. And uh, I ask you, Lord, to help them to understand they have lust in their eyes, that kind of stuff. That's just a weird, that's just a weird prayer. But I've got a couple of experiences I don't know if I've ever shared with you that uh, come from my background. And you have to understand that churches attract a lot of different people. And, um, and that, that's okay. We love this. And I don't mean any, any disrespect, but my wife and I were talking just not that long ago about some prayer experiences we had in the churches we were growing up in. And, and it, this was just a really strange one. We used to do open prayer requests on Sunday night services. So there would come time for prayer, and the minister would say, who has a prayer request? And then there in front of God and everybody, people would raise their hand, and then they would share the request very publicly. That could get very interesting in here. Let me tell you why we don't do that, because about what, I'm, what I'm about to say right now is why we don't do that here. That's why we have you write them down so we can kind of be 100% transparent, and we can also deal with the weird stuff. All right, so here's a weird thing. We had the lady praying for Roger because Roger wouldn't pray over his meals. Doesn't sound all that bad, right? It's a little strange, but what you didn't know at first until you understood her was that Roger was her dog. Her dog would eat food without praying for it first, and this was something that the whole church needed to pray about. And then we had the lady in the church I grew up in, and she started requesting prayer um, in a similar kind of situ situation. She would request prayer for her friend Bo, a gentleman, Bo, whose evil twin that he didn't know he had until recently was hitting on his wife. That was a strange request. And then Bo got hit by a car and had amnesia. And then we realized on about the fourth time, she was requesting prayer for the characters on the soap opera, Days of Our Lives. <laughs> That's the truth, friend. There's no joke in that at all. Prayer can just get strange, right? So you have lecture prayers. You have gossip prayers. You, you, I, I've even wondered about things like praying over the food. So here's something. I grew up in the South. Praying over the food is kind of a, an, a ritual we go through. Jill and I do that in our family. And there's a standard phrase you use when you pray over the food. Lord, bless this food and the hands that prepared it. Which is an interesting phrase. I've always wondered why not the whole body. So I thought this year that over the Christmas dinner, I would pray the Lord would bless the food and the kidneys that prepared it. Didn't go over quite as well as the hands that prepared it. But prayer can just be very, very strange. And the reason why we're going to spend 21 days of prayer, where I'm going to ask you to do something very, very simple. Carve out a few moments of your day, just a few moments, and talk to God. That's it. 21 days of prayer is all about carving out a few minutes of your day where you personally talk to God. Now, as a pastor, there's a handful of things that if I know, if I can get you to do them, God doesn't like me more. Uh, I don't get brownie points with God. It doesn't get me more income in the church or put more noses in the building. Doesn't do any of that. But I know as a pastor, and my heart for you is this, is that if I can get you to do two or three things, it will radically change your life over time. I wish I could get you to do two or three things that would have an instantaneous black and white change in your life. Every once in a while we can offer an opportunity like that, like commit your life to Christ. But when it comes to two or three other things like prayer and scripture reading and even engagement in a pretty healthy church where you fully engage, not going to stand back in the shadows like a wallflower, but where you, where those things take some time for the benefit to show up in your life. So in this series, we're going to take three Sundays, and then beginning today through the 26th of January, 21 days, we're going to spend time in prayer. In the, in the staff, we're, start, we're setting aside a half an hour a day where we're going to shut our computers, 
turn the phone over. We're going to pray individually at our desks, wherever we are, for the needs of this congregation, for what's going on, because we want to model that. Now, not, a lot of you don't have employers that will let you do that, so you're going to have to carve out some time somewhere else. But if I can get you to pray, read the Bible, and engage church, so prayer for this message series, if I can get you to pray just a little bit every day, I know this, over time, it's going to have a profound, incredibly positive impact on your life. Again, it doesn't benefit me, uh, other than, it, honestly, it makes you easier to be your pastor. Because then when you have needs, and then, then we're praying together. Your faith will grow. You'll begin to understand what God wants in your life more. The, God will become more real to you. There's all kinds of benefits to prayer that we're going to explore. But what I've thought about in this message series is what keeps people from praying. Nobody in this room would say at all that prayer is a bad idea. Nobody would say that. We would all say it's a good idea. It's something we should do. And I bet you all of you have experiences with prayers. There are what I like to call the Hail Mary prayers, which are not about Catholicism at all. These are the prayers that you pray when you're kind of up against the wall, you know, and you have no other options. And you just throw it up to the big guy upstairs and you hope something sticks, right? That, that's okay. But there's so much more to prayer than that. When Jesus was hanging around his disciples for those months that they were together, there was something about the way that Jesus prayed that caught their attention. And they had been around prayer their entire life. Their entire culture that they were involved in was surrounded by prayers. There were morning prayers. There were evening prayers. There were prayers before meals. There was prayers on Sabbath day. The prayer was a part of the ritual of everyday life for them. But when Jesus prayed, it was different. Today, I want to pull back out an older resource that we've talked about a couple times and show you how that the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, if you were Catholic, you called it the Our Father, um, how the Our Father is not just a prayer that Jesus prayed, but it's actually a framework, it's a, it's a model, if you will, that can help us have a more intimate and, and I believe, uh, positive and ultimately life-changing experience with God through this gift of prayer that he's given us. And I don't want to put a burden on you. These 21 days are not like add one more thing to your calendar. That's not what this is about. This is about carving out a few minutes so that you can grow in your faith with God and make this investment so that over time your spiritual vitality stays fresh and alive. Here's what I have found. And it's subjective, but it's true. When I pray regularly, I'm just a better husband. And when I pray regularly, it's not that parenting necessarily gets easier, but I'm better engaged in my parenting responsibilities. And when I pray regularly, the stuff that comes with being a pastor, it, it's easier to stay aligned with what God wants, and then I don't get in between what God wants to do in this place and, 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 and any other agenda that might be going on. Prayer has this way of just kind of oiling all the mechanisms of spiritual development. So I want to point out just a couple of very uh, simple things there in your message notes if you want to follow along. We're going to ultimately park in Matthew chapter 6, but just to get us started, I want to show you a pattern that you see in the scriptures, all right? So in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, up here on the screen, you'll see this verse. It says that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. 
Now, there's three blanks for you to fill in, and I want you to just note this because really, here's the whole point. I'm going to give you the point, and then I'm going to give you a tool, all right, to use. So here's the point. There was a certain time that Jesus prayed. In this passage, it was very early in the morning. I don't think very early in the morning is necessarily the certain time for you. But it's basically this, that Jesus set aside time with regularity. He basically had appointments where he prayed in his internal calendar. I doubt he carried a day planner. I'm pretty certain he didn't have an iPhone where there was a reminder to pray. But he had in his mind, in his routine, a certain time that he prayed. And then he had a certain place that he prayed. He got up and he left his house and he went off to a solitary place. In the spiritual tradition that I grew up in, we used to talk about getting inside your prayer closet. That's an interesting metaphor, but it was meant to be a small room where you could, you could shut the door and shut out all the distractions so that you could spend a few minutes alone with God. There was a certain time, a certain place, and a certain plan that he followed. Now, if you've been around this church for a couple years, you know that I often talk about chair time. Chair time is a similar type of appointment where you find a place to open your Bible with regularity. That's how we began last year. Last year at this time, we started talking about making an appointment to spend time in God's Word. This year, we're talking about making an appointment to spend a few minutes of your day in prayer. So before we jump into the tool of kind of how to use the time, the place, and the appointment for prayer, let me just ask you to imagine for just a second where it is that you could carve out a time and a place to shut out some distractions and just spend a few minutes with God. By a few minutes, I'm talking as many as two or three to as much as 30 minutes, right? If you're not doing it regularly, let's talk around the, the number of five minutes. So I don't know what your routine looks like. I have friends, I did this for years, who would, they would pray in the shower. They were there already. It was relatively private for them. They were alone and the walls were you know, pretty confining, and so that was their time and place. And so in the shower, after they had washed their body, before they would get out, they would spend a few minutes talking to God. That's a fine place to make an appointment with God. So almost every day you take a shower, I'm assuming, that could be a great place if your water heater allows for two or three extra minutes. Or if it doesn't, then you end your prayers quicker. That's how that works, all right? So I think about this. What about you come into your office, you sit down at your desk, and before you open the computer, before you check email, before you, you know, just turn the phone over, you make sure you're there about five minutes early in case you, know, you, you, you serve a, a manager who's a time watcher, so you're there five minutes early. And before you begin your day, you've carved out four to five minutes of just, you close your eyes, maybe use the tool we're going to talk about in a second, and you just talk to God about whatever's on your heart. Certain time, a certain place, a certain plan. Maybe your life is hectic that you don't really set your morning routine. Maybe you have young kids in the house and they kind of set their morning routine. It'd be very difficult to be alone. That's fine. Then, then maybe it's as soon as they go down for the night, the very next thing you do is you sit down in your place. It's your kitchen table. It's a chair in your bedroom, and you spend two to three minutes, and you just present your day and your thoughts to God. I don't think that prayer was ever meant to be this weight or an obstacle 
for followers of Jesus that they have to engage. I think we've missed it completely on this. I think it's supposed to be the kind of thing that you do it just enough, just enough, that you personally experience the benefits. And once you do, you never have to be convinced again that it's worth your time and effort. When people are honest with me, they say things like, Ben, I'm just not sure I have time to pray. My life is very hectic. And then I watch myself and others engage Facebook throughout the day. Two minutes here, four minutes here, eight minutes there, go down a rabbit hole, 30 minutes gone. I'm not certain that we really have a time problem when it comes to setting out two or three to five minutes a day to just talk to God honestly about where we are. I'm not sure it's really a time problem. My hunch is, is that it's really more of something we haven't done enough to get the benefit that comes from doing it with regularity. I just want you to think one more time. Where could it be in your day that you could find three to five minutes, just as a beginning point, to literally shut out some distractions so there's a time there's a place where you're kind of managing the distractions just a bit, maybe not all the way. It's a time and a place, and then when you sit there, you actually get a plan, which is what we're going to talk about, of how to use that time to talk to God. A time, a place, and a plan. And I just want to encourage you as a guy that has learned this lesson years ago, and I get reminded of it often, that the real benefit to talking to God in prayer is what happens to me, both in ways that I know immediately, very often, very often after prayer, I open my eyes, and I just have perspective and purpose in the day that I don't have when I don't spend that time in prayer. So there are a lot of times when I pray, I get almost an immediate sense of a benefit. There are times I've prayed for things in the morning, and by the afternoon, the thing that I was praying about is resolved. Coincidence? Maybe, but it's just happened to me enough that I don't think it's a coincidence. So there are benefits that I get almost immediately. And then there are benefits that just come with time. I liken it a little bit to like dating my, my wife when we started dating. Here, here was this girl, and I was uh, captivated by her right away. She was very pretty, and very articulate, and I know that often articulation means intelligence, not always, but it does. So I thought she's pretty smart, and turns out she is, and uh, that, that was awesome. And, um, and I, there was just something about her. Ultimately, now I believe the Lord was in it. And, but when we first started hanging out, I just had to learn kind of how to talk to her, right? Um, you know, I, I did my best stuff that I would do when I was trying to, you know, make girls know that I was kind of interested, but not too interested, you know, because that's kind of needy. And, and, and so I did, I did all my stuff I needed to do, but, but once we got past that stuff, now it's time to kind of learn how to talk together. And so we'd go out, we'd hang out, we'd have a meal together, and we would talk, and it took us a few engagements. And then the more we would talk, the easier the talking got, Right? And then, and then even in, like in my relationship with, with, with Jill, once we got married, like once we got married, things changed, and now we had to talk about different kinds of things than, than we had. And so it took us a while to learn that. It didn't happen easily and quickly. 
I've told the story how that we didn't really fight the first year of our marriage, but uh, somewhere around our first anniversary, and the, the truth is neither one of us remember what it was about. Uh, I'm, but I'm pretty sure I was right. And that right there is the problem. We had our first real big fight, and, uh, and, and I thought, here's what I thought. I remember going to bed that night thinking, I am trapped. Here I am in ministry, and my marriage is ruined, and I've married the wrong person, and it was just horrible. And then we had to learn how to talk through those kind of deep challenges, right? And we didn't know how to do that. We, we had to learn this dialogue over time. Th- that's how the relationship has grown. And then, then we had kids, Good Lord, there were different kind of conversations. And then they went to middle school. And then we thought that was the hardest it was ever going to be. And then they're trying to launch into adulthood. Jesus, God in heaven, help us. But each time there was new levels of discussion, right? And so we're learning this thing. How, How did we learn? We didn't wait for it to just happen. We kind of Went ahead and decided we were going to have this conversation that might be awkward, could be emotional, uh, might have some weighty things, and, and the implications of the conversation might be significant, but also we just wanted to hang out together. Our goal was to do it together. And I want to tell you, that's a pretty good image for what prayer is, why it's such a gift. It's meant to be the life that we do together with God. Now, if, if, if all the relationship is, is that when you're in need, you reach out to him. I want to tell you that unlike an earthly relationship, your heavenly father can deal with that. That's okay. I'm not saying it's best, but he'll take it if that's all you do. God, I'm doing great. Don't really need you. Oh, I need you now. He has this remarkable ability to respond in grace, even in relationships that are very much like, I really don't need you. Now I do. I love you, now I don't. I love you, now I don't. He's okay with that. But that is not the relationship he desires. What he desires is you do it together. And prayer is what does that. And Jesus modeled this when very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, he left the house, and he went to a solitary place where he prayed. And then if you look at Luke chapter 11, verse 1, again up here on the screens, one day Jesus was praying, look at this phrase, in a certain place, When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Again, they knew about prayer from their culture, but what they didn't understand was the personal nature of the kind of connection that Jesus had with his heavenly Father. So Luke records that for us, and Matthew records this incident for us. And in Matthew chapter 6, we have the Our Father, or the Lord's Prayer, And this is the longer version. Um, I grew up not Catholic, and I remember going to my very first Catholic funeral. A friend's sibling had passed away. I'm in an evangelical uh, church, and uh, I go to a Catholic funeral, and it was completely foreign to me. And um, guys walking down the aisle with smoke coming out the thing, and I didn't know if we had a fire, if I needed to leave or not. And then people are bending and touching themselves, and... I didn't know anything about that. But then there came a point when they started praying the Lord's Prayer, and I knew it. I knew the Lord's Prayer by heart. The thing is, is that in Luke, there's a shorter version of the Lord's Prayer that leaves off the last couple of lines. So in the Catholic Church, they pray the shorter version. So here was the awkward moment for the evangelical in the room. They're all praying out loud in unison together. I'm with them finally on the same page. They stop praying, and I continue praying. And everybody turned around and said, you're not Catholic. 
They didn't, but that's how I felt. That's exactly how I felt. And then the priest said a few things, and then they all said the last part, and I thought there's no division in the Bible about this at all. But the difference is that Luke has the shorter version, Matthew has the larger version. Let's read it from Matthew. Again, in your message notes are on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then that's the end of the Luke prayer. But in Matthew, it continues, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And the word amen simply means so be it. So when you say amen or when I'm preaching, one of you says amen, which never happens. But if you would, it simply means so be it. All right. Now, this prayer was not meant to be simply repeated, although it can be. It was meant to bring to mind certain principles and ideas to help facilitate the conversation with God. So I want to walk you through those very, very briefly as a tool. Now, I want to tell you something. When I falter a little bit in my prayer life, what I mean by that is is I'm not as diligent. That happens on occasion. I always return to this tool right here. I always return to the model of the Lord's Prayer and what I'm going to show you as a way of kick-starting back in my conversation with God. So Jill and I try to have a date night with regularity, and sometimes things will happen. It'll go two or three months, and we don't. And then we have to kind of like hit the restart button and go, one more time, date nights are a priority, right, for us. And I have to do that on occasion with prayer. All right, God, my time with you is a priority. It's not just the thing I do because I'm a pastor. It's not just the thing I do when I pray for everybody else's stuff. I need to talk to you as well. And when I do that, when I come back, I always go back to this model. That's why I'm offering it to you. If you take the phrases of the Lord's Prayer, they present for you incredible pictures and metaphors and images that can guide the conversation. So I want to show you a little bit of that. The first one is the phrase, our Father in heaven. So in your message notes, blank number one, it says, connect with God relationally. When Jesus prayed our Father, he was probably speaking Aramaic. Um, This is the language that was mostly spoken in around the the New Testament, Galilee, Jerusalem area. And the, the word literally that Jesus used was likely the word Abba. Abba, which was the word the kids typically learn to speak first. I always thought it was very unfair. A woman carries a child for nine months or so. She gives birth. It can be excruciatingly painful. Certainly it was in the days of Jesus. And then she you know, has the, often the primary responsibility to, to care for that child. But the first word that a child speaks as often in our house was data uh, or daddy. And the reason for that is because I drilled it into the kids. You will say dad first. Over and over and over, and I didn't. But it's just true. And so the word Abba was easily spoken. It was often the first word spoken by a kid. It was in reference to the father. And so in the Aramaic language, the equivalent for daddy is Abba. So when Jesus prayed, he didn't pray like the highfalutin, overly religious, strict prayer cycles he was used to hearing all the time and the disciples were used to hearing. He went to his Father in heaven, and he literally began his prayers with the word daddy. And that's just odd. It would stand out. Imagine how it would be if after Will gets done with a great worship set, I walked up in here and I said, let's pray. Daddy? Now, if you've been around church, you'd be like, oh, okay, I get it. But if you're a guest, you're like, what the heck's going on with that? That's kind of odd. And that's exactly how the disciples would have felt. Why is Jesus talking 
So now they're leaning in and listening. And then when they would hear him pray, it got their attention. So much so that they said, would you teach us to pray? Would you teach us to pray? You know, in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, here's part of what's going on. The Apostle Paul tries to explain it to us. He says that sometimes there's a challenge in us understanding just how relationally connected we are to our Heavenly Father. So he says, you have not received a spirit that makes you a fearful slave. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his children. Now we call him Abba, Father. This is Paul reaching back to Jesus' words. When you come to Christ, you're adopted into the family. Adoption is a one-time act done on the behalf of the child. That no matter how the child behaves after that, they're in the family. This is what's going on with our Heavenly Father. He has brought us all the way into His family. And God loves for us to call Him our Father. It establishes an intimate relationship with Him and it allows us to thank Him for the relationship that He has provided us. And it expresses really His heart towards us. The challenge is, as we talked about on Christmas Eve Eve, is that the image of a father can be somewhat marred in a person's mind. And if that's true for you, it really breaks my heart because an earthly father is supposed to give a, a person, a child, a young man or young woman, their first hints at what a relationship with a heavenly father can look like. I'm always for your good. I'm here to listen to you. I'm here to provide. I'm here to instruct. When I instruct, my discipline is for your good. It's not because I've been inconvenienced. When you experience my frustration, it's simply because I'm pained at where your behavior is going to take you in life. And so I'm able to look ahead because I'm older and you're not. And I want to bring to you a certain sense of the future impact of your behavior. This is the heart of a heavenly father and a good earthly father. It gets marred. So in prayer, it gives us an opportunity to establish a better relationship with God, perhaps, than we ever had with an earthly father. Our father in heaven. And then the next phrase is, hallowed be your name. Now, I, I mentioned that I had a friend who was Catholic, and years later after that particular event in his service, we were chatting, and I, I was talking with him about the challenges and opportunities that presented themselves with him being Catholic. And he said, the funny thing, I've never shared with him anybody else, uh, every time we went to church, we would say the Our Father, and for years, I thought the Lord's name was Howard. Our Father in heaven, Howard be your name. <laughs> He's like, for years, I didn't know until I actually like read it in print later that it, that it was hallowed. What does the word hallowed even mean? Hallowed is an old English word that's really power with, punched with a lot of meaning. It specifically speaks to the, the, the idea of the most beautiful. So your name is most beautiful. And it also speaks to the idea of most special. So most beautiful and most special. It's interesting, Jesus begins with this very relational idea, and then he jumps right to this very specific expression of how powerful and awesome God is. And those two things can stand in tension, and they do because they're both true. Now I have a picture that I want to show you that I think kind of captures this idea really, really well. Would you throw this up here with you guys? Some of you guys will recognize this guy, that's JFK. And that's John Jr. there at the bottom of the, the desk that years later, uh, Nicolas Cage would uh, go in and steal stuff in that movie that he made. Um, 
Some of you know that. But look, look at this. I don't know what JFK is looking at, and it's probably staged, but I like to imagine that he's reading a very important document while he's ruling the free world, and his son is somewhat oblivious to the power of his dad, the most powerful man in the world, and he's just hanging around his father, right? And he's just having a good old time. Look, look at that. There's like an inquisitive look on John Jr.'s face there. And this is the kind of challenge that I think that, that we have to wrestle with and we actually get to enjoy. That we're talking to the most hallowed person ever, our Heavenly Father. He's so special and so powerful and so awesome and so beautiful that even his name carries significance. And at the same time, he's our dad. That's a pretty cool image. This is a pretty cool way to begin to understand what makes prayer so special. So here's some of the ways in which God's name is special. Throughout the Old Testament, God's name, which in the Hebrew language is El, which means God, or what we call Jehovah. It's a transliteration of a few Hebrew letters. But that name, God or uh, Jehovah or El, is often connected with other words to kind of bring specialness to the name of God. So in the Old Testament, you have names like Jehovah Sidkenu, which doesn't mean anything unless you know Hebrew, which was a very, very difficult language to study. They didn't enjoy it. They write their letters in the wrong order, and they go um, right to left instead of left to right. But Jehovah Sidkenu is God who is our righteousness. So the Hebrews thought that God was so special that they attached to his name certain attributes of what God was like. So on occasion they would pray to Jehovah, but they would name some attribute, Jehovah Sidkenu. God, you're my righteousness. I'm not righteous in myself. I can't do it on my own, but you make me righteous because you have brought me into a relationship with you. There's Jehovah Rophi. It's God my healer. Jehovah Nisi. God who is the banner of victory over me. There was a lot of war in the Old Testament, a lot of you know, nation states. And so on occasion, they go to God, and they didn't just talk to God. They talked to God, and they would begin their prayers with, God, you're the one who is the victory. I don't know what's going to happen over here, but you're the victory. So if I'm in you, no matter what happens over here, I'm in victory. And so they would use these characteristics and the name of God to remind them of just how great he is. It might be worth your time to spend a few minutes and just Google the Old Testament or the New Testament names of God and just see this multifaceted perspective of who he is and how he operates. So God, you're my righteousness. You're my sanctifier. You're my healer. You're my banner of victory. You're my shepherd. You're my peace. This allows me to have in mind of who it is I'm talking to. Who is he? So have in mind who he is. God, you're my father, but you're also the ruler of the universe. You're the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, when I pray that, and I pray that pretty often when I pray about the finances of this church. God, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You do. There's never a need that this church has had financially that you don't have the provision for. There's never an opportunity that we need to grab hold of by grabbing hold of the finances to make it happen that you don't have the resources and when I pray about the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it just reminds me that I'm not praying to a God who lacks anything. God, you're the healer. So when I go into a hospital and I'm sitting there and I'm praying with somebody and it's a terminal situation, I can confidently pray to the God who is the healer, knowing that he's going to do what's best because he's also a shepherd. 
for the situation, for the person, for the family, for everybody involved. And so knowing who God is allows me to talk to him more candidly and more clearly. This happens in your earthly relationships, and the more you talk to God in prayer, the more comfortable you'll get to be with this kind of engagement of who God is. So you connect with God relationally, you have in mind who he is, and then number three, you pray his agenda first. This is, I will tell you, the number one reason why it is I have to reset my prayer life consistently. Because I will get on a track record of regularly praying what I need. And again, it's okay to do that. It just isn't all that is available. If my wife only came to me when she needed something, I, I, I love her. I, I have a long patience for that. But what I really want is more than just to be needed by her. I want a certain amount of of engagement with her that goes beyond just let me provide something for her. So when I pray God's agenda first, what it's doing is it's reminding me who's in charge here. So in Luke chapter 12, verse 31, here's what the Bible says. He will always give you all you need from day to day if you'll make the kingdom of God your primary concern. When I sign letters and emails. Most of the time, I put my name. Then I put Matthew 6, 33. It's been my life verse since I was about 16 years old. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added to you. This is about putting God's first. And I want to, you want to take a few notes. I want to give you some of the things that God's most concerned about. You ask God, God, what's at the top of your list? Here they are. Number one is saving the lost. So whenever you pray for God to save your grandchildren, save your kids, save your neighbors, to draw them to himself, you know you're praying in the will of God, right at the top of God's priority. God gave his greatest gift to the world to save the world. And so when you pray for God's salvation to be brought to a person's life, you're praying right in alignment with the agenda of God. The other thing that God seems to care a lot about, there's a lot of stuff in the New Testament about this, is guiding those in authority. So it's for parents, it's for spiritual authority, it's for governmental authority, it's for the workplace, it's for your school. God, you set up leaders and you tear them down. That's what you do. You make men kings and you destroy kings. It's all in your hands. So God, would you guide those that you've put in place to accomplish your purpose? You know, in another sermon series this year, and since we're entering into an election season, I'll do a little talking about how God tends to work that way, so you can go ahead and start getting those questions if you want, emailing them. But the truth is, is that when we pray for God to honor, bless, and do his will through those in authority, we're praying in accordance with the will of God. So when you pray for your pastor, that's a good thing, and I certainly need it. When you pray for our governor, our president, that's a good thing. They certainly need it. Because the task on every person who holds authority from God is bigger than the person, and they need God to help them do it. And sometimes God works in spite of them to accomplish his will. Sometimes God works in cooperation with them to accomplish his will. But at the end of the day, God's will gets accomplished. So when we pray for God to be there, we're walking with him. Here's a third priority I want to give you. We pray for God's will in us. So we pray for God to save the lost. We pray for those in authority. We pray for God's will to be worked in us. Our Father, holy be, holy be your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's will happens. On earth, God's will happens. On heaven, in heaven, it happens without restriction, without delay. Heaven is not a place where the brokenness of sin has touched the world. Heaven is a place where God's authority reigns unencumbered, without any engagement at all of dark forces. And so on earth, when we pray for God's will to be done like it is in heaven, we're saying, God, you have your freedom here to do what you want to do. So in the two to three minutes of my morning prayer, it might sound like this so far. Thank you, God, for being my father. That I have a privilege to come to you because I'm your son. I'm grateful that I get to talk to the one who rules the universe, that has all the power and all the wisdom, because I confess I don't have enough of either. So Lord, I want to start my day by praying for those to whom I'm in authority under. You know what that reminds me of? That the universe doesn't revolve around me. Lord, I want to acknowledge that you want to use me in part to bring the message of the gospel and salvation to the world. So everywhere I go today, would you let me be a light in a dark place? So what I'm doing when I talk to God like this is I'm resetting myself under the authority of the one who's actually in charge. Let me give you another phrase. Number four, depend on him and be grateful. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then give us today our daily bread. So God, I need you. Now in the New Testament time, they didn't store up food. There's no refrigeration. They pretty much worked every day for the food they were going to eat that day. Food was made other than on, on um, Friday mornings in preparation for Sabbath. It was made only for the day. So Lord, today I need you to show up today. I don't need to bank a bunch of stuff from you. I need you today in a fresh and new way. So Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2. Here's how the psalmist David wrote about this. He said, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? And the answer is no. My help actually comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So ask God for what you want and need and then trust him for the answer. Can I tell you what was the most freeing thing for me? One of the most freeing things for me in prayer I learned one day that I could ask for God whatever I wanted to ask. And because he's wise and good, he's only going to give me what I need. So it didn't matter what I asked for. He was only going to give me what I needed, which was really cool. So I could ask God for anything. Knowing that because he's not just a provider, he's also a shepherd. He's only going to give me what I need. And that just put, took the reins off. It allows me to say, God, I think I need this. I think this should happen. But at the end of the day, you're in charge and I'm going to be grateful for what you do with this. Number five is an invitation to get your heart right with God and people. So the truth is, is that believers, disciples, make mistakes. We sin. That's why the apostle John wrote in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So in this portion of the prayer where Jesus says, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, it's an invitation for us to get our hearts right with God and with people, to check our motives, to receive God's forgiveness, but also to extend forgiveness. God, I'm struggling in this relationship. Would you help me? I want to be open to your purpose in this relationship. Make my heart soft and pliable, not just to you, but to the people who've wronged and hurt me. It's a big deal in the Bible. We're actually going to spend an entire sermon series this year on forgiveness. Um, it's a 
thing that has tripped up my life and has been a challenge. It's also something I've learned an awful lot about over the last 7 to 12 years. So in this portion of the prayer, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors, is, is an acknowledgement to remember that God has forgiven us, and that becomes the foundation of the beginning point for us to be holy, complete, and healthy with people that we have had difficulties with as well. Phrase number six, engage in spiritual warfare. So forgive us our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one specifically. So we just did Ephesians, but Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers in this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. So this is an invitation for you and me to take our stand against the enemy and fight the good fight of faith, and to resist every lie that the enemy has told us and replace it instead with God's truth. I pray regularly, God, don't lead my children into temptation. In other words, the, it's a little weird language in English, but God, as you lead them, lead them away from temptation and lead them towards the life you have for them. I wish that somehow I could take from my brain and my heart and my experience and deposit in my children the wisdom that I've learned from the pain of personal experience. That's why I'm so passionate about praying for my kids, that God would deliver them from evil, that he would put people in their path who would speak life over them. It's one of the reasons why Jill and I made a decision before I ever was going to be a pastor, that we were going to raise our kids in church because we wanted people who were going in the same direction with us who could speak into the life of our children. And I'm going to tell you something. One of the things I'm most thrilled about with this church, on my worst day as a pastor here, and I have a few, the thing I love most about this church, can I be honest with you, is you've helped me raise my family. And I think together we've done a pretty good job. We're not perfect. And I'm going to know in about 10 years if I was a really good parent or not. It's too early to tell. But in general, there are people here, and some of you are in the room, and you've invested. You know, part of what's going on there, I have prayed for you. God put people in the lives of my daughter and my sons that will speak your truth into them, that will counteract the lies of this world, that won't make sin look too fun or too enticing, that will make the truth of God look like the real freedom that is offered. You want to see me get passionate in prayer? Hear me pray for my kids and pray for my wife and pray for this church, that God would move us away from the evil that this world presents. Number seven, express faith in God's ability. Look at how Jesus closes out this prayer. For yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory. This is Jeremiah saying, Sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm, and nothing is too hard for you. I've quoted this back to God a hundred times. God, I don't see how, but nothing is too hard for you. And when when I end my prayers reminding myself of how strong God is for every situation... And then I say amen or so be it. It allows me to open my eyes and now I'm ready to face the world. Now over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to give you a couple more tools. But for today, I want to ask you, do you think you could find a certain time consistently and a certain place where you can hedge out a few distractions and then maybe over the next few weeks you find a plan that works for you to spend three to five minutes in prayer. And I want to tell you, if you'll do it consistently, there's 366 days of this year, there's 360 or so left. If you'll hit 300 of them, 
I'm telling you, you will be in a radically different place spiritually than you're at today. I promise you. If not, I'll give you all your money back that you paid for me to preach this sermon, which is zero, just so we're clear. It's not a legally binding document. It's metaphorically, all right? Make sense? A certain time, a certain place, a certain prayer. Why don't you grab a, a, a certain plan? Why don't you grab out your uh, Connect card, and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. Next step A for us every week is today I want to make Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you're not yet in a relationship with him, I'm going to give you a chance here in just a minute to say with him, to him, what the Bible says about you. God, I'm, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. So I'm going to trust the work you did for me and gave your life and you were resurrected from a borrowed tomb. I'm going to trust in that alone to save me. If you want to do that, check the box. Pray with me in a minute. And let's do business with God. Put it in the offering bucket when it comes around. Next up, he says, I want to be baptized on February 9th. That's going to happen right here in this room. It's a wonderful day. Even if you're not going to be baptized, make sure you're here for that day and let's celebrate what God's doing. It's a wonderful day to see how God's working in our church. Next step, C says, hey, I will pray for our church, our volunteers, and our leaders over the next 21 days. I'd love for you to just check that box. And specifically, I'm asking for your prayers. The work God wants to do in our church is bigger than any of us. It's bigger than all of us. And we need the Lord to show up or it doesn't get done. So would you just invite God and specifically, God, be with Pastor Ben as he tries to lead as he tries to model, as he delivers your work. And, uh, and I'd certainly be appreciative for that. Next up, D says, hey, I'm interested in the serving opportunity at 4C. If you're not on a 4C serving team, then I want to encourage you to think about that this year. So if you check this box, you'll just get some information. You don't have to do anything with it, but it will give you the information you need to take a next step to serving. So if you have any remote idea at all that maybe you'd like to, or you just want to see what we do, check this box, you'll get it. And then if you follow up, we'll follow up. If you don't, we're done, all right? And then next step, he says, send me the link for Grow 2. Remember, Grow is a four-week experience. The first one happens on the first week of the month. The second one happens on the second. Grow 2 is about developing spiritual habits like prayer. So it's a great opportunity as we're doing 21 days of prayer to take Grow 